Philippians chapter 2. Hear now the word of the Lord. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not to his own interests, but to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure." Do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you, for I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me, and I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also." I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my needs. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. This is the word of the Lord. Just a comment in conjunction with the, the morning sermon when we talked about anxiety and such. Notice that, that Paul speaks of being less anxious. Anxiety still happens to Paul. It's not, that, it's not that the apostles were somehow perfect and never... So there are things we get anxious about. It happens. Paul's, you know, Paul's talking about how there are the ordinary anxieties of life. They happen. It is not, it is not a sin to be anxious. Just like it's not a sin to be angry... It's not a sin to be afraid. It's not a sin to be anxious. 
if you think about all those things. Be angry and do not sin. Your anger will cause you to seek to make things right, and that's a good thing. Be afraid. You know, fear the Lord. There are things you should be. There's a rattlesnake. Be afraid. <laughs> I mean, there's a thing, you know, there, fear, there's a good reason for fear. And there's a good reason for the anxiety. I mean, is this is, after all, the, the same Paul who will say shortly, be anxious for nothing. Be, but he's just said that he's anxious. <laughs> so, recognizing that there are things that, the question is, what do you do with them? And that's, that's crucial for thinking about all these things in life where it's, these, are, these are things that happen in the midst of situations that we're in. And the question is, what do you do with them? When the angel of the Lord appears, everybody who ever saw the angel of the Lord falls on their face. And what does the angel of the Lord say? Do not be afraid. Does that mean that the person who was just afraid was sinning because they were afraid? <laughs> no, 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 no. When you see the glory of the Lord appear, you should be afraid. When the angel of the Lord says, do not be afraid, that is not saying, your fear is irrational. No, your fear is very rational. This is God we're talking about. He is saying, do not be afraid. I am with you. And so that's where recognizing all of these things we, we encounter, it's not that there's no place for them, therefore Christians don't have them. Paul's saying, I got it. But I'll be less anxious when I send Epaphroditus to you because that will resolve this situation that is of concern. Now, thinking about what Paul's doing in this section of Philippians, Paul had, had told them that he wanted to come to see them back in chapter 1, verse 26. And then he launches into his central concern for them, which is that whether he can come see them or not, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, chapter 1, verse 27. And as he's just said in, in verse 16, that you would hold fast to the word of life. And all of this because you are to have the same mind, that mind, that attitude, that disposition that was in Christ Jesus. And the mind of Christ is an attitude or a disposition of humility and sacrificial service. Uh, as we're going through uh, our servant leadership training class, I'll, I'll, we're, we're going through a number of books right now. Uh, and if I'll be, I'll be sending out a note to the, to the forum just to let you know what's coming up. Uh, but this is something that if anybody wants to come and join in for a book or two here or there, you're very welcome to come. But we're basically looking at what does it mean to walk in humility and sacrificial service. Uh, and so if we as a church of Jesus Christ are to have this one mind, uh, there's no better way of getting there than by having servant leaders who share this same mind. And indeed, this is Paul's point in verses 19 to 30. Paul had started with an exhortation to the church to be of one mind because that's who Christ is and you've been united to him. And then he returns to this exhortation to be of one mind in verses 12 to 18. And now he gives us two examples in Timothy and Epaphroditus in verses 19 to 30. So you could say it another way. The center of Paul's exhortation is Christ's own humiliation and sacrificial service. And this mind is yours in Christ Jesus because you have been united to Christ. And so therefore, you are to look like Jesus. 
as you imitate Christ in your life together. And if you want to know how this looks, look at Timothy and Epaphroditus. We start by looking at Timothy in verses 19 to 24. Paul says two things about Timothy. First, he says that Timothy will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. In other words, Timothy seeks the things of Christ rather than his own interests. This brings us back to verse 3 of chapter 2. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Paul says that Timothy is a model of humility. He exemplifies verse 4. Let each of you look not to his own interests, but rather to the interests of others. Remember, there's, there's no only there in the Greek in verse 4. The point is that as Christ did not seek his own interests, neither should you. And Paul wants the Philippians to know Timothy's concern for them is that sort of concern, genuine concern for their welfare. And also, secondly, Paul says in verse 22 that they know Timothy's proven worth. And there's a very simple reason for saying this. Paul wants them to think back to the time when Paul and Timothy were there with them in Philippi. You've seen this. You saw Timothy when he was with me in, before you. Remember how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. Think about what this showed you of the mind of Christ. Think of the of his humility. You know what I'm talking about. I'm talking about Timothy, remember? I know, for the rest of us, we're like, uh, yeah, right, Paul, but we, we weren't there. We didn't see, but you got a picture. You, you, you've seen somebody like this. You've seen somebody who acted with humility and sincere, genuine service to others. And this is part of the reason why we have interns, whether, you know, we've sometimes had pastoral interns or, and then elder interns, deacon interns. But the point of having interns is that they are growing in their service to Christ and to others. And in order for this to work properly, we need to, we need to see the all-important preposition with. Paul does not say that Timothy served me. No, no. He says, Timothy served with me. In the gospel, it's an important model for us to consider as we train up future officers in the church. Deacon interns are not our servants. No, they serve with us in the gospel. Now, uh, for those of you who are parents or who will someday be parents, think about this also with your children. Certainly, as parents, you have authority to tell your children what to do, but how often do you, well, how do you think about your children? Do you think of them as serving you? Uh, we sometimes make the joke about, oh, they are their slave labor. It's not a great joke. It suggests that we think of them as serving us. Or do we think of them as serving with you in the gospel? As we disciple our children, as we prepare them for Christ's service, after all, our job is to bring them alongside us that our children might become fellow laborers in the gospel. And this is where the, the contrast between Timothy and they all is so striking. Who are the they all? When, when Paul says they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ, but you know Timothy's proven worth. Who's, who's the they all? These are the 
people around Paul. These are the other interns and uh, other people in Paul's circle. This is probably referring back to the most of the brothers in verses 14 and 15 who are preaching boldly because of Paul's imprisonment. And this is a good reminder to us because sometimes we have this idyllic picture of, ah, oh, in the early church, in the apostolic church, if only it was like in the days of the apostles. Paul says, I have no one like Timothy who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. Paul's got this traveling presbytery. He's got this circle of ministers and interns and people preparing for gospel ministry. Sort of all this, this team that's traveling together, working together in the gospel. And as Paul looks around at this circle, he, as he considers their spiritual maturity and preparation, he tells the Philippians that, honestly, um, I got no one like Timothy. I mean, you almost feel a little bad for the other guys who are sort of part of this team. You're like, Wow. Well, it's because Paul's a man of integrity. And he probably, I mean, if, he, if he's saying this in a letter, we can at least presume that he probably had also already told them this because this is, guys, we need to work on this. <laughs> um, and now, part of it may be that Paul also seems to have a habit of sending out those who are fully trained and ready, so he's constantly surrounded by a half-trained bunch of interns who haven't quite gotten the point yet. So, now, also we should allow for a certain measure of hyperbole. After all, he's about to mention uh, Epaphroditus, and he, and he speaks very highly of Epaphroditus, so probably Epaphroditus would count too. Uh, but we need to remember that apostleship did not give Paul the ability to change hearts. And people in the first century were generally just about as spirit-filled as people in the 21st century. The problem in Rome, or wherever Paul is, is the same problem as in Philippi. It's the same problem in Granger. It's the same problem everywhere the church is, that each is seeking their own interests. Everyone is so busy with their own affairs to be concerned for others. And they may even be concerned with church affairs. I mean, Paul's not saying everybody around him is wicked and depraved. It's just they don't really have a clear vision of the kingdom of Christ. Maybe they're young guys who are preoccupied with their own preparation for the gospel ministry. Maybe they're older men who are focused on the needs of their own family. Whatever the case is, Paul sees that they don't have a big picture approach to the kingdom and they're allowing local interests to trump the interests of Christ. Here you see something of a gap between Paul's vision of what is ours in Christ Jesus, the first half of Philippians 2, and our experience of that new reality. Paul sees that the mind of Christ, this mindset of humility and sacrificial service, is ours in Christ. But our knowledge of this mindset, our experience and practice of this mind, often falls short of the new reality. So, now what, what do we take from this? Some might say, oh, well, then we should have low expectations. I'm not what I should be. So what? Who is? Do you ever get that sense from Paul? <laughs> no. 
Paul's exhortation to the Philippians is designed to call them to press on, to leave all else behind in their pursuit of Christ. Paul is an incurable optimist. He sees who Christ is sitting at the right hand of the Father. He sees who you and I are in Christ. And so he says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. He has no one around him who is genuinely concerned for the Philippians. No one who is seeking the interests of Jesus Christ except Timothy. And yet Paul has confidence that in the end, they will all be pure and blameless in the day of Christ. Now, do you have any idea how nuts this sounds? Because when Paul writes Philippians, we're about 30 years after the resurrection of Christ. The gospel has taken root in a handful of Jewish communities in Palestine, Syria, Turkey, and Greece, and a number of Gentiles have joined as well. But amongst the millions of inhabitants just of the Roman Empire, there might be 50,000 Christians in Paul's day. In other words, you could fit all the Christians in the world in Paul's day into Notre Dame's football stadium and be only half full. Oh, and most of that 50,000 is squabbling over the necessity of circumcision, who gets to be the leaders of the movement, and a hundred other matters. And yet Paul is an incurable optimist because he knows that God has seated Jesus at his right hand. All that God had promised to Israel has been given to Jesus. The Lord Jesus has poured out his spirit upon the church in order to accomplish his purposes. And so Paul goes forth to preach, to persuade, to convince, knowing that the power of his preaching, the persuasion of his ministry is not from himself, but it's from the spirit of God. God has promised that he will put all things under Jesus' feet. And Jesus has called Paul to preach this good news. That's the reason why I'm an incurable optimist too. It's not my job to change you or anybody else. That's the Holy Spirit's job. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. I am called to be faithful with what God has put in front of me to do. Now, it would be far more enjoyable for me and profitable for you if you turn out to be more like Timothy than like they all. But then again, you know, I need to imitate Paul as Paul imitated Christ. And so Paul says, I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. Paul does not know how Jesus is going to dispose of matters. So he needs someone like Timothy for the moment to stay with him, but he will send him as soon as he can. But he, he recognizes that he needs to send somebody immediately. And so he says, I've, I've thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. Paul referred to Timothy as his child. Uh, partly this is the relationship, the mentoring relationship that Paul had with Timothy. But he refers to Epaphroditus as his brother, and fellow worker and fellow soldier. 
This is the way that Paul refers to his fellow ministers in the gospel. According to an early tradition, Epaphroditus is thought to have been the first bishop of Philippi. And honestly, Paul's manner of speaking suggests that's probably the case. In verse 25, he refers to Epaphroditus as your messenger and minister. Uh, the words here being apostolos and leturgas. He's called an apostle. Now, though he's called your apostle. Um, now, the word apostle simply means one who is sent or messenger. That's why it's translated your messenger because that's what the Greek word means, your messenger. So he's not referred to as an apostle of Christ. He's rather an apostle of the Philippians because the Philippians had sent him. The reason why Paul is an apostle of Christ is because Christ sent Paul. Epaphroditus is an apostle of the Philippians because the Philippians had sent Epaphroditus. So if, you know, if we, if we sent somebody to go to the store to pick up a you know, thing, a thing of gas for the grill, we would call that person our apostle, who's the, the apostle of the Church of Michiana Covenant, uh, who's been sent uh, to uh, acquire a gas, gas for the grill. That's, uh, just so you know, the word apostle is that, I mean, it, it's, it is not nearly as grand and glorious in Greek as it is in English. In English, it's only, oh, apostles, they're, you know, in Greek, it's the messenger we sent over to go do that thing. But still, even though, but when he's, he's not saying that Epaphroditus is one of the 12 apostles, but his use of the word certainly suggests that he does think very highly of Epaphroditus. He is, after all, the Philippians apostle whom they have sent to him. And then the word leturgas is connected with what Paul says in verse 30 about how Epaphroditus nearly died to complete what was lacking in your leturgia, your liturgy to, with me. Uh, these words... Uh, these words don't mean what our English word liturgy has come to mean. Uh, we use the word liturgy to refer to the worship service. Uh, in Greek civic usage, a, a leturgas was a public servant, often one who has financial resources to do the work of the community, uh, which fits neatly with the, the financial assistance that the Philippians had sent to Paul. But if all you see is the public service aspect of the word, then you might think that Epaphroditus is simply the one who, oh, they sent him with a, you know, a check. They, you know, they sent him with the resource money to give to, to Paul. But Paul plainly sees Epaphroditus' sacrificial service as having priestly overtones. Uh, after all, the words leturgas and leturgia are used regularly in the Old Testament to refer specifically to religious service. This is, re this is used in Numbers and in Chronicles to refer to the priestly service in the temple or the tabernacle. In, in the Greek of Paul's day, uh, these, these words can be used to refer to household service, but the New Testament regularly uses these liturgy words with a, a sense of that priestly religious service similar to the Septuagint, the Old Testament translation. And since Paul himself has just used the image of being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrificial service, the sacrifice and leturgia of your faith, we should see the same priestly imagery continued here in verse 25. Okay, so what's, what is Paul doing by, by using this language of sacrificial liturgy? In, in Paul's world, the idea of sacrifice included both a financial and a religious component. A, a sacrifice, after all, is a, an act of worship. It's also expensive. If you're going to bring, yeah, even a goat is, that's, that's a significant cost. 
to engage in worship is costly. If you think about the way the New Testament talks about the side of things, it, in one sense, uh, true worship is, is so expensive, you can't afford it. Why do I say that? Well, what's the sacrifice necessary to cover your sins? Your life. You can't afford that. Because then you're dead. <laughs> That's why Jesus came. Only the precious blood of Christ could make atonement for us. And because Christ has paid for all our sins with his precious blood, the sacrifice that God requires of us is simply ourselves. This is why Paul will say in, in Romans 12 uh, that we offer ourselves as living sacrifices because Christ has paid the penalty for our death and therefore, we offer ourselves. This is, this, and that's a very. This is, this is, this is. You might say liturgical language in the, in the in the sense of offering ourselves as living sacrifices to God. Now, also behind this, you can see, and Paul oftentimes will talk about how providing for those who preach the gospel is connected to the provision for the priests in the Old Testament. So, in the Old Testament, religious sacrifices were part of the way in which you provided for the priests. You know, the burnt offering was burnt whole, but all other offerings included portions for the priests. Grain offerings, peace offerings, sin, guilt offerings, all these include portions for the priest. Tithes and firstfruits, likewise, included for the priests and Levites. And while Paul does not think of Christian ministers as priests in the strict sense of the word, he does argue for a parallel in 1 Corinthians 9.13. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. And while Paul makes a big deal in various places about he himself does not avail himself of that right, but when the Philippians send him financial gifts, he uses the same language to talk about it. And, and you can see why when you connect all this. If we are offering ourselves as living sacrifices, then there is a part of us, a part of our living sacrifice, that should go for the maintenance of the ministry and the preaching of the gospel to the nations. That there's a way in which if we, if we are devoted to Christ's kingdom then we should be, because part of, part of yourself, namely your labor, is then transferred into, in our, in our day, we transfer it into cash, and then we give, we don't, we don't, no, we don't even transfer it into cash, we, tra we transfer it into bits and bytes and, on a computer somewhere, and we, then we transfer those bits and bytes on computers somewhere around. It's all very strange. But, but the end result is that a part of our labor goes to maintain the preaching of the gospel throughout the world. And then if you, and Paul will continue to use that same language, the, the same connection between the financial and the priestly in chapter 4, verse 18, where he says, I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus, the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Why is it that we've referred to the offering? Why, why do we talk about offerings at church? I mean, in the Old Testament, your offering was a bull, a goat. Or that was, that was what the offerings were. Why do we use the term offering to refer to financial gifts? Well, because the, well, the, the atonement part of sacrificial, the sacrificial system is done away with in Christ, the, there's, 
there's parts of it that continue to be practical for the church. For instance, when we saw in Leviticus, the, the burnt offering is called the ascension offering because the whole animal is burnt, and so the whole animal ascends up to God in smoke. And for that matter, the, the language of offering means to draw near. So the burnt offering is quite literally an ascent drawing near to God. And so when you, are, when you offer a burnt offering, you're symbolic, symbolically drawing near to God. You're saying, we are here to worship you. We are here to draw near to you. And... The burnt offering in Leviticus 1 verse 9 is said to be a pleasing aroma to God. Paul is saying that the financial gifts that we give in order to further the work of the gospel are like the burnt offering in the Old Testament, that we are drawing near to God with our gifts, saying we, we are here to worship you, we are here to further the, 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 the work of the gospel throughout the world. It's about how God is pleased with the sacrificial service of his people. And that's where, it, because it is a sacrifice to give to God a portion of our finances. It is a sacrifice because, I mean, I'm sure everybody would say, oh yeah, I could, I could use that money for something else. I'd really like to use that money for something else. But to say, no, actually, because I'm devoted to seeking first the kingdom of God and of his righteousness, therefore, I will give that first portion of what I have to God for the furtherance of his kingdom. Because part of, and, you, and this is where, you think, again, you think back to why did God require that whole sacrificial system in the Old Testament? Well, so that his worshipers would express their wholehearted devotion to God. It's, it's expensive because it's designed to show that all that I have and all that I am belong to God and are devoted to his service. And so we are called to do that. And so notice that Christ's, Christ's once-for-all atoning sacrifice means that the atonement part of what, these, what the system was about is gone. That's why, that's why we don't require any bulls or goats or lots of you know, bloody sacrifices. We don't need the shedding of blood. But that doesn't result in the elimination of all sacrificial language from Christian worship and ministry. As Peter said in, in 1 Peter 2, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Who offers spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God, according to Peter? You do. What sacrifices do you offer? Well, this is, I mean, it's financial part of it, but it's, it's in your whole life offering yourself to God as a living sacrifice. Or as Hebrews 13 puts it this way, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. All sacrificial language in the New Testament becomes oriented around Christ's once-for-all sacrifice. Because he has offered the once-for-all atoning sacrifice for sin, therefore we offer the sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving. We offer ourselves as living sacrifices. We offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God, pleasing to God, because we offer ourselves to him with all, so that all that we are and all that we have are devoted to Christ and his kingdom. It's not just about what you give at church. It's about what do you, how do you live your life and how do you live in before, before the watching world. Because this is true for the, the church as a whole. It's also true for her ordained ministry, and particularly here with Epaphroditus. 
And you can see in, in verses 26 to 30 how devoted Epaphroditus has been to his ministry. He has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Now, we don't know the whole story. The, apparently, the Philippians had already heard the details, so Paul doesn't bother to explain. Thanks, Paul. I'm sure it's a great story. But if we needed to know the details, Paul would have told us. But that allows us to see the point very simply and clearly. Epaphroditus nearly died for the work of Christ. He was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him. And not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. It would have been, I would have hated to have to have written to you and said, so sorry, but your pastor Epaphroditus is, is dead. That would have been a tough letter to write. But I'm now the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again and that I may be less anxious. Epaphroditus is one who understands that to live is Christ, to die is gain. He nearly died for the work of Christ. And, okay, in his case, it, it wasn't that he, you know, he nearly got strung up by the Romans and executed. He, got, he fell ill on a trip where he was seeking to serve Christ and nearly died. You, you think about, you think about the, probably the majority of 19th century missionaries to Africa who died within the first year of their arrival because... <laughs> It was such a terrible climate for European, uh, people of European descent that we, they got in the habit of, of packing, of packing their, their coffins with them when they went on the mission field because they knew the, like, the likelihood was that was the only way they were coming back. Okay, we're going to go preach the gospel uh, for maybe for a, a couple of years. <laughs> and, but we're going to... We're going to go because this is, what, you know, this is what it means to follow Jesus. To live is Christ. And the lesson for the Philippians, as for us, is that they should honor such men. Paul has, has done enough warning of the Philippians against grumbling and, and disputing. And he keeps bringing up these issues of honor and leadership. And he addressed the, the bishops and deacons in the opening. So perhaps... Paul is holding up Epaphroditus as an example of sacrificial service in order to gently exhort the Philippians to greater fidelity in honoring their leaders. But also notice, once again, the theme of rejoicing. This keeps coming up over and over and over. He prays for them with joy in chapter 1, verse 4. He speaks of their progress and joy in the faith in chapter 1, verse 25. He urges them to complete his joy in chapter 2, verse 2. He rejoices in the midst of his trials. He rejoices in the thought of his martyrdom. And he calls them to rejoice with him in this as well. And so then he says, receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. He calls them to rejoice because, because the gospel continues to go forth. To rejoice because, because Jesus is continuing to build up his church. Jesus is continuing to, to the, 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 the gospel would go forth to the end of the earth because truly to live is Christ, to die is gain. Let us pray. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, 
Thank you for your great mercy. Thank you that you have continued to send forth your gospel to the ends of the earth, that, that you have continued to, to bring forth fruit throughout all the nations, that now, 2,000 years after your son came, we might see in, in, throughout all the earth your gospel being preached, that people in every land are proclaiming the name of Jesus. We, we pray that you would continue the work that you have begun we thank you that, that, that you have been faithful to your promises and we pray that you would continue to be faithful to those promises that those who preach your gospel might continue to preach boldly and faithfully the good news of Jesus and that your gospel might continue the work of, of bringing people into conformity to yourself that we might be yours forever. Lord, thank you for your great and precious promises. Thank you for men like Epaphroditus who have been faithful in, in even risking their lives to complete the work of the gospel of Jesus Christ in seeking to bring the good news in, in every land. And we, we marvel at, at how, you have, how you have taken the, the, the work of, of weak and, and helpless people and you have blessed it that while so many of us have sought our own interests rather than those of Christ, yet you have used the preaching of, their, of the gospel of Jesus to accomplish your work, that your, your word has gone forth, that whether preaching out of, out of rivalry or, or out of good motives, that the gospel has gone forth, that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, we rejoice. And we pray that, that you would make that you would continue to bring all these things to their completion in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you would help us by your word and spirit to live humbly and faithfully, that we might seek not our own interests, but those of Jesus Christ, that we might live as, as your people, serving together in the gospel, that we might show forth the love of Christ, the mercy that you have shown to us in, in our in our daily lives. Help us in our, in our workplaces, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our schools, in each place where you put us. Help us to, to bear witness to the gospel of Jesus in our words and our deeds, that those around us might see in us and hear from us the glorious gospel of Jesus, that, that your spirit would be at work in and through us, that your spirit would continue to renew the earth, that your spirit would, would accomplish your purposes in convincing and converting sinners that through all, through all the situations of life, we might grow and increase daily in the faith that is at work in every good deed. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.